Genesis uh, 49, we're still kind of making our way, maybe up to 28, I don't know if we'll get to the end. Um, If we do, we'll back up to it anyway next week just to kind of carry the flow of thought if the Lord tarries. And um, so, we kind of got up through verse 7, so picking it up at verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who's going to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea and he shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall back. And I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now Gad is a troop, uh, Gad, a troop shall tramp on him, but he shall triumph at the last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose, he uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob... From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, blessings of your father, have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the uttermost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separated from his brothers." Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, and in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. And then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron in the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And then when Jacob had finished com- commanding his sons, he drew his feet, <clears throat> excuse me, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people, and then Joseph. 
We'll pick that up next week. It's a paragraph right there that ends with verse 1 of the next chapter. Well, verses 1 and 2 and 28, you know, Jacob gathers, that's the context or the, the frame of this blessing. He gathers his sons to tell them what will befall them. He blesses each one. and It says according to each one's own blessing. And uh, if we remember uh, last week, we talked about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. In all the things in Jacob's life, um, this was the chapter, and these blessings are the ones that Hebrews 21 talks about being an example of faith. By faith, Jacob blessed these blessings. And we looked at um, 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 Reuben and... and, uh, who was it, Simeon and Levi, last week. And we talked about them, and coming up next, it's Judah. But, um, you know, these are the things that, that he blessed, and it says, by faith. And as such, you know, Jacob now, by faith, that talks about Hebrews, is establishing that same um, covenant. And now on to his sons. It was the covenant of Abraham then Isaac, then Jacob, and the God that we worship and the God that they worship is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all. And so um, this establishes that blessing to these tribes. Now they're a nation. They're not just individual tribes. Um, And that promise all the way from the seed of Eve and who would uh, be the Messiah from these guys of Israel, the hope to the Gentiles. Remember from the beginning we saw that that same seed is the hope of the Gentiles for salvation, and ultimately in the garden what God told Eve is it's going to crush the enemy. It's going to crush the head of Satan. And that did indeed happen 2,000-some years ago on the cross when he rose from the dead and led captivity captive, and there is no more grief or sorrow in, in death or in the grave. It has no power over us, except for those of us that are left behind that are missing our loved ones. They are in great shape. They are um, they're with the Lord. And so what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to multiply their descendants, fill the earth, be a blessing to many, this is what Jacob is passing on. And that's that by faith in Hebrews 11. And so really, from Genesis now, and we're just about done with it, but on through the whole Bible, all of this was written so that the world would know that God indeed is the creator and indeed loved uh, man, and he did send his Savior, but through all of history, uh, using Israel and this nation of Israel that Jacob is now blessing as proof that he indeed is God, and he's made himself known to this people. He chose Abraham out of the world, and then uh, ultimately salvation from sins and eternal life to whoever believes in him. We went through those guys, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, last week in verse uh, 7 ending up. Now in verse 8 through 12, talks about Judah. Now it says, your brother shall praise you. The word praise is kind of interesting there. I don't know what you usually think of when you think of praise, raising your hands and, and crying out to the Lord and praising his name, being grateful, showing him honor and praise and glory. Well, this kind of means they will praise him. The, the actual word means to throw Um, to throw or shoot or cast out and give thanks and to laud them, confess them, to put it out there that Judah is our brother. It's that kind of praise. It's that kind of, no, Judah is part of us. He's part of Israel. 
And, you know, um, it, throughout prophecy, they knew that the, the lion of the tribe of Judah would come out of Judah. Um, it says your hand will uh, be on the neck of your enemies, and that means they will dominate their enemies. Your father's children will bow down to you, and from the throne of David on down, you know, uh, they did. Uh, they bowed to the Lord, they worshiped the Lord, but they were uh, in submission to the throne um, and all. Now it says a lion's whelp is a young cub, is what that word actually means. The whelp is a, the youngster. Uh, so the lion's whelp means a young cub. It says he goes up satisfied to find a place and lie down and that nobody would dare roust him up. So he's talking about this. He has his prey, finds his prey, goes, finds a place to lie down, and you don't mess with a lion when they're at their, you know, when they're resting and they've got their prey there and there's usually a, a, a bunch of them gathered around. But if you wanted to turn to Revelation 5, we're talking here about this first mention in the scriptures of Judah is a lion's whelp. And he's talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, you know, you've heard that so many times. And you go looking through scriptures, and uh, just for that phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah, you'd think it'd be everywhere. It first shows up actually as that phrase in Revelation. So 5, verses 1 through 5. And I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Interesting how it's a worthiness. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, in other words, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David also, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So here it is, um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and also he's got to be also the root of David. So it's two qualifiers there for who gets to open that scroll. Now, we're dealing with... Uh, as you go down, uh, the Lamb of God and, and uh, that chapter 5. But this is the first thing that takes place after John sees the throne and describes in chapter 4 uh, what's going on in the throne room of heaven. And now this is at the end of you know history. And there's a scroll to be opened. And it's important that it is to the point where John weeps over this. And because there's nobody found worthy, and, and yet it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is worthy? Well, those qualifications. Um, only Jesus is worthy of the great and mighty authority of Almighty God, you know, to take the scroll from his hand at the very throne of heaven. You know, no man shall see God's face and live, not to mention you're going to walk up to the throne room and take that scroll out of his hand. And so there's only one that's worthy, and that was his only begotten son. And he comes to that throne, that seat of judgment of all things in heaven and earth. Now, the Father gave 
the Son, Jesus, all authority and power. And he does now sit at his right hand. And we looked at that a few weeks back. But if you want to go back to Genesis 49 again, to verse 10, and then we'll be getting over to Second Samuel pretty quick. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, that scepter is the rod or a staff, a branch or an offshoot, a club. And it's specifically, it's of a tribe. Now, remember we studied when uh, Judah was uh, gadding about in, in uh, the land of Canaan and, and he uh, went up to, uh, well, the story is Tamar, his daughter-in-law, his son died. And uh, then his second son uh, didn't uh, raise up any seed for Judah through Tamar as she was promised. And so uh, the third son was real young. And so Tamar waits around until the third son would get old enough and that he would then raise up a seed through Tamar. And that was the promise to her. Well, you know, Judah forgot about it, neglected that. And, and so she goes by the side of the road and, and uh, as a prostitute and Judah comes along himself. And remember what he did? He gave her the rod. That We talked about that rod, that staff. It's usually got a, a, a tribe name on it. It usually has to do with it. And as we're seeing right here, um, also, that staff had the name and the identity. And then also the signet ring and the cord that they would bind this around their wrist so that this would always be on them. And you know, if you look at it these days, they've got these cords that they wrap around and goes up the forearm, and, and it's all part of their their identity, and he gives, you know, we talked about how foolish it is. He gives away everything. He might as well give the gal his passport and his license and the password to his bank account and everything else because that was all that he had. That was his ID. And um, But we talked about that. That scepter is that staff that marks who you are, but here it's also that mark of authority. As when it comes over to now we recognize a king who has his staff, and then you know, they would... You know, reach forward if somebody was going to come in. And, and so it's a lot more here than a shepherd's staff or even a, in that, but it's an identity of a king or of a ruler and all. And so it, it had that, that identity with it. That scepter is not going to depart. And he's talking about that uh, root of David. He's talking about that lion of the tribe of Judah. He's talking about your brother shall praise you. This is that authority that is in Judah. And that scepter is not going to depart. Now, um, if you want to go to 2 Samuel, just to establish what that authority was, 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 7, because we talked about that lion of the tribe of Judah who was worthy also was the root of David. Just seven verses, it says, And it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came in there, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, 
to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strengthened, be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And so this is the first. Saul was you know, anointed king over Israel, but uh, Saul was not the Lord's choice. But uh, he did uh, allow them to have a king. And the story goes, you know, that uh, Israel, the Lord wanted to be their king. He didn't want to put a king over them like all the nations around them had kings over them. But they wanted a king over them. And that's a whole other Bible study. But um, So David was anointed king. And uh, already, you know, back in, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel had already gone up to the house of Jesse and had gone through all the sons. David came in from the field and he was already anointed, but now the men of Judah made him their king. And that was the beginning of that scepter being in Judah, that ruler. And then from that tribe, they traced back David's you know, lineage all the way back through to Judah, through uh, um, Ruth and Boaz and even Rahab, that whole line going back. Now, 2 Samuel 7, if you just go a couple pages, um, 8 through 17... When God made his covenant with David and established him, starting in verse 8, Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I have appointed a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they will dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish my throne of his kingdom forever, speaking of Solomon, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the, bows of the, the blows of the sons of men. But, mercy, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now it's in the presence of God. Now his throne is established till the end of time? No, no. When it talks about being forever right there, it's not talking about the end of anything. In fact, to this day, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and that scepter is there with him, and he sits at the throne and has taken the throne of David, and he has established his kingdom. And uh, if you want to turn to Psalm 89, keep your hand in, in uh, well, actually, yeah, let's go to Psalm 89 quick. 
Psalm 89, 1 through 4. Kind of uh, cementing this. Um, it's actually a psalm by Ethan, the Ezraite. Um, but it's remembering that covenant with David. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made my covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever to build upon your throne to all generations. And then he says, Selah. And you know, you hear that all the time, Selah. And it just means to dwell on it, roll it around in your mind, to meditate on it, rolling it over and over and letting the Lord minister to you as you know, you think of these things, it's a forever throne. It's David's throne. It's forever. And you know, we eventually, if the Lord tarries, and if we ever got this far, I'd be kind of amazed. But if we made it to Chronicles and and Kings and First and Second Samuel, and how the Lord said of David, "Here is a man after my own heart. Here is a man that desires to fight for the kingdom, fight for Israel." To to risk his life, and he's got his, the zeal he has, and he'd worship. He'd go up to the temple, and um, he just worshipped the Lord. Didn't care what any man thought, and, and uh, just would dance before the Lord. Isaiah chapter 9. But that throne has been established forever. And I'm kind of leading up to something here, because... There was a time that there was nobody sitting on that throne. Well, then how could it be established forever? Well, we'll see if that was true or not. So uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, don't ever let that escape your notice. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, that zeal to do that. The Lord's going to do this. It's not just temporary. It says there is no end of it. It's henceforth and forever. Psalm 45, if you want to go back there. And thank you for doing all this flipping. But it's good for you to see it with your own eyes. Psalm 45, verse 6. Just one verse. He says... Your throne, O God, is forever. And it says, A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. A scepter of righteousness. Thy throne is forever. How do we know that this is a messianic psalm? If you were to read through this psalm, you know, it, it seems he's talking about the king. You know, it's a song, uh, 
by Cora, and it begins, My heart is overflowing with good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is a pen, ready of a writer. So he was a songwriter. He's one of the sons of Korah, one of the worship leaders. And uh, you know, so he begins to describe the king. And as you read through it, you think, well, this could just mean King David. But verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. So now turn to Hebrews 1, verse 8. You know, how do we know this is a messianic psalm? Well, first of all, Jesus said that the volume of the book, in other words, everything in the Old Testament, um, refers to him. Uh, And so that's one thing, but still, uh, many times you you wonder how that fits or you wonder how that can be and, and all, but when in doubt... You go look at Hebrews, verse 8, and it's indeed, reading up to that, um, well, just 1 through 8. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the worlds, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And this is Jesus, this is the Son. When he had by himself purged our sins by dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So he goes on to say, so which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says this, let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, to quote Psalm 45. And so it's the Son your throne, O God. He says, that's the Son of God. He sat down at the right hand of majesty and his throne is forever. Now, Revelation 2. um, Verses 27. Revelation 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. And they can be taken quite certainly for being letters that were written at the time and taken throughout the churches at the time. And they're certainly also prophetic and they're also certainly personal for us that we can look at any one of these situations of any one of these churches and we can take that to heart and examine ourselves and to see where we're at with the Lord. And so this particular church uh, for verse 27 is... uh, the uh, church at Thyatira. And, um, well, and the angel of the church said, these say the Son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like brass. I know your works. They had works. He knows their love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. So they're getting better at doing good things. 
as they go. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now Jezebel, who was married to King Ahab, is long dead and you know, she was eaten by dogs at the, at the bottom of the wall that she was dropped from and all. But here's now Jezebel and that type of attitude that she had that fits who she was. She's in this church and she's calling herself a prophetess. And what does she do? She teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality, eat things that are sacrificed to idols. Now, that may not necessarily be what we do these days because we don't have people running around giving certain foods to idols like they, maybe they do in some other countries around the world to this day. But um, what that means is, first of all, you know, sexual immorality and all, but also just doing things that everybody else in the world does as unto Satan, you know. Uh, and you find this in the church these days, you know, even, you know, having the beer parties and all that. You know, I, I don't care what you're doing in your own home. I don't, you know, that's between you and the Lord. But to bring it into the church and these days and, you know, beer tasting things in a church. They'll have, uh, you know, guys that are using all kinds of foul language because, well, we're just trying to be culturally... It's the part of our culture that's we want to be able to reach peoples out, you know, and, and they they think it's no big deal to just use some of the worst language because they're trying to be relevant and all. And um, you know, these are things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. They didn't have any care about honoring God's word in regards to marriage. And it says in twenty one, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. And indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation, or into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death, and her churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. You know, just know that right now. God searches your mind. He searches your heart. You know, you don't need to see something happen to somebody else to know that's true. You know, that's what's so rich about having our walk with the Lord and being able to know that we can pray any time. Why? Because he's with us all the time. We can be honest and open with him, one-on-one -on -one with him, because he knows our hearts already, and he searches our hearts, and he knows our minds already. You know, I start to pray sometimes, and I go, Lord, you said you already know what I'm about to pray, so please pay attention to the groanings, you know, because you just are in such a, sometimes a deep thing in the days that we're going through. And, um, you know, so I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds of the hearts, and they will give to each one according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine who do not know the depths of Satan as they say I'll put on you no other burden. In other words there were people in this church that were trying to search out just how evil evil is and unfortunately that's just too easy to do these days. He says but hold fast what you have till I come and he whoever comes and keeps my works until the end to him I will give power to over, uh, power over the nations. And it says, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, vessel, and as I have also received from my Father. And so the verse I wanted to get to is just that the church, you know, will rule with Christ. Those that keep themselves from these doctrines of Jezebel. 
you know, the prophetess and all. And people are being led astray. That it's okay to just sin all you want. We, you know, the big deal is we've been saved and we've been washed, we've been cleansed, so have at her. Well, whatever happened to Romans chapter 6, where he says, if grace abounds, you know, if sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In verse 6 he says, therefore should we sin because it will help grace abound? Well, God forbid. May it never be. Anathema. How is it that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins and now he wants, we want to go and sin all the more? But that's what he came and he died for. It, it doesn't acknowledge that uh, the wrong, the evil that is sin. He didn't die for our sins so that we could sin all the more. He died for our sins so that we could be cleansed from it and uh, we could be with him. And so, um, you know, that's the doctrine of Jezebel. Um, you know, we will rule with Christ. Now it says, with a rod of iron, which is that scepter that never departs from Judah. Um, therefore, if that's your future, don't be living carnally after walking after Jezebel. Flipping a few pages to Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 5. says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his head. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, had a place prepared to her, for her by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, speaking of the tribulation. Now, this is a, a view of history. Because indeed, Satan did desire to, in fact, Herod, King Herod, when Jesus was born, went through and started killing everybody, all the two-year-olds in there. And up, because that was the time about when Jesus had been born. And so Satan uh, definitely sought to uh, take and, and devour and waited. He knew that the, the, the line of the tribe of Judah was going to come. And when he heard that it was going to be Jesus, he sought to do that. Well, there's other things in there, this, passage, this passage. Obviously, we know the woman is Israel. Some might say it's the bride of Christ. Well, first of all, she's pregnant, so let's hope it's not the bride uh, because they're not uh, in heaven with the Lord yet married at the wedding feast. And then also uh, the fact that we saw in, earlier in Genesis, you know, Joseph had those dreams, um, the sun and the moon. And the 12 stars, even jo Jacob said to Joseph, I says, why would you say that about me and your mother and your brothers? Naming exactly who these were. But another sign in heaven, so the fiery dragon and all. And he drew a third of the stars of heaven. Now that is, uh, you know, the angels, when they fell, uh, you know, a third of, the, third of the angels fell from heaven when Satan fell like lightning. And he drew a third of the stars uh, with him and all. So anyway, 
the bottom line is here, he will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. If you go two more pages to chapter 19, um, it adds a little more character to what we're talking about in Genesis 49 when, when Jacob says of Judah, he says, you know that guy that, that, uh, that who's going to, the scepter, the ruler, what does it say? Um, shall not depart nor the lawgiver, Shiloh comes, he shall be obedient to the people. It says he binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey and colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of the grapes, his eyes darker than wine, his teeth uh, whiter than milk. And in Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Out of his head were many crowns. He had the name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In the armies of, in heaven, clothed um, in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. And on his name is written on his thigh, the king of kings. On his robe, his name is written, uh, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so, making the point here that this indeed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, that, you know, he has that staff. He is that ruler. He has not left from between, in Genesis 49.10, between his feet. That staff, is, staff has not left him. Now, Israel had no king until 1 Samuel. They anointed Saul as king. But Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, had no king until David. Now, um, there was, through that whole period of judges, even though God did use Judah to go forth and go before them in battle, there was still no ruler in Judah. Well, what does this mean then? It says God will choose who is the ruler to fulfill this prophecy. Uh, and it, was the, uh, it would be the one that he chooses from Judah, not Saul. Saul was actually a Benjamite. We'll see that a little later. Until Shiloh comes. Now Shiloh, the word literally means he whose it is, or he who it belongs to. But it also has this meaning of because there's a ruler, and he's got the authority, in Judah or in Israel, there will be a tranquility and a rest and a peace. And so Shiloh has that aspect to it, that because there's a ruler, because there is, uh, the scepter is there, and there's a, an authority that's there, there will be peace. There will be even tranquility. Now, from this, the Jews rightly expected that the Messiah of Israel would have to come from Judah but also that there would always be a king or authority in Israel. And we talked about that. If you want to go to First Chronicles, we're almost halfway through all the flipping. or a little past half. Um, and if you want, just I'll read them and you can listen as you go. But um, there would always be a king or authority in heaven, and in Israel, I'm sorry. 
First Chronicles 5, just one verse, verse 2. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthrights was Joseph. And we talked about this verse last week when we were talking about Reuben, who did not keep his birthright and forfeited it because of what he did. And now that word, though, that we're looking at today in Judah, prevailing, uh, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler. That word ruler is nagid. And it's, some translations would say, will come a prince. But that word nagid is the chief prince, the ruler, the leader, captain, overseer. Turn to Daniel 9. So nagid. Um, where we see that word used specifically. Daniel 9, verses 20 through 25. Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, caused to swiftly... Am I in the right chapter? Yeah. Um, Caused to swiftly... Uh, fly swiftly, reach me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I now have come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Nagid, There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And so at that appointed time, and Jesus was indeed born 483 years later, leaving seven years yet future, and that God will fulfill with that little nation that we see right on that uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean in the days that we're living right now. And he will once again uh, work with them and deal with them according to that seven years that has yet to be fulfilled according to this passage right here. And this is a huge Bible study that um, and I, would, I guess I would uh, counsel you to maybe get the tapes or the CDs or the uh, whatever you can get your hands on. If you've got a tape player, they don't make them anymore. But, um, and, and check out Dwight teaching through Daniel chapter 9. Um, but the thing of it is, what was the reason? That every nation of the world would know. And in, indeed, here they sit on that shore, and every nation in the world knows that Israel is now a nation. Turn to Micah 5, just maybe a dozen pages to the, to the right there, or maybe two dozen. Um. <clears throat> Nagid, that one ruler, now the prince, 
And he even says the date that it would take place to Daniel. So Micah 5, 2 through 5. But you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler, Nagid, in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, and therefore he shall give them up until the time that she is to, uh, who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. And when the Syrian comes to our land, and when he treads our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight prince, princely men, and all. And it goes on to talk about Israel's enemies. But the out of Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah, the son of David, this one shall be peace, it says. There will be no king from any other tribe than Judah that is recognized by God in Israel. Now, Zedekiah was the last one, the last king of Judah that was recognized by God in Israel. And that was some, what, five, six hundred years before Christ, uh, 586 B.C., I guess. He died when he went into captivity. Now, so is that when the scepter departed from Judah? Well, it can't, because then the word of God would be broken. And then you and I don't have anything to believe at all. If God's word is not 100% true, then what part is and what part isn't? So we have our confidence is shot. Well, they had, still they had authority, even when they were in captivity over themselves, that they could uh, exercise authority over Judah, over Israel, amongst themselves, even in captivity, there would be kings that were given to them. And, um, you know, from uh, Israel themselves, from Judah. Now, um, they still had that authority among themselves. Then there were the Persians, the Greeks, and about 100 years of independence Israel had. And then Rome came along and ruled that part of the Middle East. And eventually Rome uh, installs this vassal king, Herod, now, um, his family had been converted to Judaism, uh, so there's a little question about the legitimacy of Herod's true, you know, uh, race, I guess, if you want to put it that way, or his true uh, bloodline, um, all of that. So he was raised by, uh, had converted to Judaism, so he was raised in Judaism, but his family was Hellenistic, and so they were you know, divided. And so he was a king that just wanted to keep everybody happy. Well, now Rome had come in and says, we, we rule here. Nobody else rules here. And this is when the scepter, as far as the Jews were concerned, had left. Because here is now uh, Rome ruling. And the one thing that made it plain to them is that they no longer, as we know, had the ability to exercise capital punishment. And so I'm going to read you just a little letter here that kind of explains it. Um, to be honest with you, I don't, can't even remember where I got this. But the scepter of Judah and the ruler's staff, it represented Judah's authority to apply and enforce Jewish law, which was epitomized by the right to uh, adjudicate 
and administer capital punishment on its own people. At the beginning of the first century AD, King Herod took authority and control of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the rabbis of the Jews. As part of that process, the Roman Empire took control of Israel's power to invoke capital punishment on its own people. And the Jewish religious leaders viewed this as a partial fulfillment of Genesis 49.10, like we were reading about the scepter not departing. However, since the Messiah, Shiloh, had not yet come, they mourned publicly. When this took place and Rome took away their ability to do capital punishment, as far as the, the religious Jews are concerned, this broke the Bible. All of a sudden, what God said was never going to happen, just happened. They no longer had that. Well, little did these Jewish leaders realize, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem a few years earlier. And at the time of their mourning, Shiloh was a young man growing up in the region around Galilee. And indeed, the biblical genealogies even record that Jesus was in the line of Judah. A few decades later, it was dramatically clear that the Jewish religious leaders had lost their right to administer capital punishment under their own religious laws. And during the trial of Jesus by Caiaphas, the high priest, and his council of religious teachers, Caiaphas came to the point where he had to bring Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate didn't want anything to do with the proceeding, but the Jews reminded him of the legal situation. Pilate said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected and that was John eighteen thirty one, And we know the rest of the story. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross for the crime of blasphemy under Jewish law. Judah lost her national identity in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and the Jewish temple. At this point, Judah had ceased to exist as a nation, which completed the fulfillment of Genesis forty nine ten. As we read in the New Testament scriptures, Jesus had already revealed himself as Shiloh, the Messiah, before the scepter had departed from Judah. And at the time of Judah's final destruction, Jesus Christ had already completed his ministry on earth and returned to the right hand of God. Matthew twenty-seven eleven, Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? You know, up until then, Jesus was, was mute. He was silent before the, like a lamb before the slaughterers. But when he asked him, Are you king? He couldn't remain silent. He had to tell the truth. And the truth is, yes, it is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. And um, so in, uh, you know, that scepter was carried on through Jesus. And when he was crucified, well, the scepter didn't depart from Judah because the king who sits on the throne of David sits at the right hand of God. And that scepter is in his hand in all power and glory. Um, a few more passages. Jeremiah 33, if you want to go there. So God's word is not broken. You know, think about that. Um, You've got all kinds of, you know, debate these days. I mean, you and I have nothing else if this Bible isn't 100% reliable. Um, you know, if, if uh, you want to trust the science... You know, and they, they're going to tell you this or that about creation or this or that about evolution or anything like that. Um, well, there are those, in fact, uh, um, among like the Russ, uh, oh, I can't think of his last name now, um, 
there's the, uh, the uh, creation of scientists that disprove what they're trying to say. There's even genetic proof. And, you know, that's a whole other study. And, and it's good, those guys, when they come to our conferences, that they can, can share that knowledge with you. But um, Jeremiah 33, 14 through 17. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and he shall execute judgment, righteousness, and the earth. In those days Judas will be, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests of the Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. As promised, David never lacked a man because Jesus came, sat on that throne, the throne in heaven. In Isaiah 63, um, and that is talked about in Genesis 49.11, but we see Isaiah 63 is fulfilled in Revelation 14. We don't want to turn there yet, or we don't need to, but verses 1 through 6 in Isaiah 63, Who is this one who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads the winepress. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from my people no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I look, but there is no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me. In my own fury, it sustained me, and I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And we do see that fulfilled in Revelation 14. Again, Jesus said the volume of the book was, speaks of him. The Jews went around mourning back when they thought that the, the scepter had departed from Judah. And yet, in fact, there was a 12-year-old boy in a temple and those around, sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions and all that heard him, they were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Um, yeah, there's a bunch to do yet. And uh, I think uh, we'll just maybe pick up with Zebulun next week. And all, because we'd run way past our time. But... Um, you know, Jacob blessed each one of these, and now we have Judah and the scepter, speaking of Jesus. He blessed each one of these boys in the appropriate way for each one of them, fitting for what was them. And, uh, you know, these 12 became a nation, and these 12 were also individuals. And God deals with nations, but he also deals with individuals. You and I, he loves individually just as much as he loves any others. And that blessing that Jacob blessed all his sons for, 
Some you might say, well, Jacob wasn't that good of an example that way because he loved Joseph more than the rest of them. Well, the Father in heaven loves every single one of us enough to give the most incredible blessing, and that is his son for our sins, and that's for each and every one of us. And so it's up to us to respond to that love. And um, let's pray. Well, thanks, Lord, for your word. And um, Lord, thank you so much that your word is not broken. Thank you that uh, you're so faithful to, to make foolish the wisdom of this world and to confound their wisdom because uh, they're looking at things through just the wisdom of men. And Lord, we're just grateful that you've moved on our hearts and by your Holy Spirit you bear witness to these things so that we know that we know that we know that you indeed have saved us, you indeed are the Son of God, and you indeed have laid down your life for our sins and done the things which we could not do for ourselves because only you can, only you are worthy to take that scroll. And Lord, we just want to show you that honor and that glory and to know that Almighty God dwells in us and Lord, that we live our lives the way we know we should before you and so I just lift all this up to you and pray that your word would be causing us to continue to grow and, and know you better and love you better and more and give our lives to you in, a, in a more ways and the ways that you'd have us to walk and just teach us how to respond to you. And so we thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.